The following dialogue is intended to provide global perspectives on haemophilia and is provided for educational purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is intended only for residents of the United States and is not intended to replace discussions with your healthcare provider. All decisions regarding patient care must be made with a healthcare provider, considering the unique characteristics of the patient. The opinions expressed in this dialogue are the opinions of the individuals and not the opinions of Pfizer. The information and advice offered in this podcast is provided by participants based on their own personal experience and not in their capacity as a healthcare provider. No clinician has supervised, reviewed or endorsed the following as medical advice. Pfizer does not recommend or endorse any of the content as medical advice. The individuals featured in this podcast may have participated in or may currently be members of an advisory group for Pfizer Inc. This podcast is intended to be heard within the context of its original location online. Pfizer is not responsible for content if heard elsewhere. Hello, and welcome to HemeCast, a podcast series designed to help you keep up to date with advances in science, technology, and clinical care in the rapidly evolving world of haemophilia. Coming up in this episode, we discuss the role of telehealth in haemophilia care and how the recent pandemic has accelerated our adoption of this digital engagement approach. If you do it once, you realize, wow, why didn't I do this before? Yeah. (laughs) I think that new technologies really help us to identify what's the best way to communicate individually with all of our patients. It's always been stressed by my clinical team that I can access them anytime, any place, anywhere, which, funnily enough, uh, kind of sounds like a bank slogan, but is actually, you know, really reassuring for me to know in times of crisis. When you build this kind of a relationship where, where you have this trust, trust with the, within each other and the patients will um, value your input, they will give back, uh, they will contact you then more easily and more often. You might have heard the terms telemedicine or telehealth, but but what does it mean in the context of haemophilia care? Telehealth involves the use of telecommunications and virtual technology to deliver healthcare outside of traditional healthcare facilities. So it involves the use of information and communication technologies for the exchange of valid information to advance the health of individuals and their communities. Now, during the recent pandemic, we've seen clinical practice change dramatically, which has been accompanied by a growing demand for telemedicine and digital health. In fact, a report from the US found that telemedicine visits grew by an astounding 400% across age groups and by more than 950% in those patients over the age of 65. And that was just in one week as the state started to go into lockdown. Now, not surprisingly, we've seen a similar trend in Europe. For example, in France, the national insurance firm recorded 10 times more teleconsultations in a single week in March, right at the start of lockdown, than the entire month of February. As clinics and teams globally look to online tools and services to ensure continuity of care, the benefits, challenges and future opportunities of this model have become a hot topic for discussion, for healthcare teams and patients alike. In this episode of HemeCast, we'll be exploring telehealth as it relates to haemophilia. 
We'll discuss how healthcare communities and patients are adapting to the new normal of virtual clinics and consider what this might mean for the future of haemophilia care. And we're going to start this journey by going back in time to the world pre-pandemic, September 2019 to be precise, when we had the pleasure to speak with Roshni Kulkarni, a Professor Emerita of Paediatrics and Human Development at the Michigan State University in the US. Professor Kulkarni participated in a Pfizer educational meeting where she explored the role of digital, social and telemedicine in haemophilia, including how these technologies are helping expand haemophilia services and connect specialists from across the world to share experiences and support advances in care, even before the crisis forced clinical care teams to pivot to a more virtual model of healthcare. So I, I know that you in your own practice, you really embrace telemedicine. Can you give us sort of an idea of, of, of what a day looks like when you're running a telemedicine clinic? So essentially, I mean, we don't do it every day or anything like that. We, we sometimes do it, you know, once or twice a month. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes we do it if there is a patient who's gone to a distant area. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we schedule the telemedicine mm-hmm. once a month or something like that on a Tuesday uh, with a primary care physician, a pediatrician Mm. or a family practitioner. And so we pretty, it's just like scheduling patients for your clinic. You know which patients are coming. Some of them are new patients. Some of them are return visits. So we do what is called a preclinic, which means we kind of go over the patients and we decide uh, if this is a new patient, uh, it it is just like... um, uh, getting an information from the physician saying this is what this patient is going to come for. Yes. So we look at the list and then when we then send the uh, the telemedicine site, which is called actually the originating site, because mm-hmm. that's where the patient originates from. Yep. We send them a web link mm-hmm. and it's a Zoom web link, but you can use other video conferencing sure. system and they join us. And we usually have like four video four or sometimes six video conferencing rooms. Yes. So a nurse can be in another office. Okay. And our social worker can be in another office. Yeah, yeah. And if we can have two patients at a time even. Okay. So our social worker can be seeing one patient and getting pretty confidential information and things sure. like that, while the physician can be sitting in a virtual office or sitting by their desk, basically. Mm. They just have a thing which shows that they're in an office. If you do it once, you realize, wow, why didn't I do this before? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And what do the patients make of it? What do they say? What's their feedback? Okay, so the initial, so we actually, uh, when we got the grant, we did a study and we said, what do you think about this? And what was very interesting was patients loved it. Remember, for many of them, they never see a specialist. Mm. It mm. is so hard. Mm. And they said it beats, you know, traveling with the whole family yes, yes. for almost eight, ten hours. Yeah, yeah. And But then some of them said that we wish you had or our team had introduced to them saying you will be seeing a physician by telemedicine. This is the process. Okay. So what we did was we wrote up a process mm-hmm. where we now inform every patient saying that... Uh, 
This is a telemedicine visit. You'll be seeing the specialist by a video conferencing system. Mm -hmm. This is what we're going to do. And the, the specialist and your physician are going to discuss what labs to get. Mm -hmm. And if you need a DDAVP trial, okay. you can, the local physician will do it yeah. with the guidance from the specialist. Yeah. And then once the results are back, your local physician will tell you, or if you need to return for a visit, then you will be seen again by a telemed. So the process is very well explained to them yes. as to what happens to them. So there's no surprises. Okay. The best surprise is no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it, so it sounds incredible and, it, and, it, and it's wonderful how you've embraced this. And I suppose my final question to you is, we've heard a lot about innovation at the Global Summit and about medicines that are in development coming through to change patients' lives. But when you think about digital health and you think 10, 15, 20 years in the future, what really excites you when you're thinking about those innovations on the future? So I think digital health is here. Yeah. <laughs> and the applications are kind of exploding over the I would say in the next 20, 40, people will say, what are you talking about? It's like a regular phone versus a cell phone or a yeah. smartphone. I mean, it, it, people have just embraced it yeah. all over the world. And it's the same thing will happen that you will see that things like artificial intelligence, things like, you know, social, digital applications, apps, as we call it, are going to be a daily occurrence. Mm. Like right now, I wear a watch which can measure my heart rate, my blood pressure. Mm. It can say how many steps I take and what I do. Yeah, unbelievably so it's very exciting. exciting times ahead. So, as you heard, telehealth and telemedicine already playing a vital role in bridging the gap between patients, healthcare professionals, and health systems in haemophilia at Professor Kulkarni's centre last year. Specifically, Roshni touched on the importance of supporting initiatives that allow patients to access services and information wherever they are, regardless of where they live. Connecting healthcare services through telehealth can also make it easier for healthcare professionals to collaborate, allowing for the exchange of knowledge and experience within the clinical setting. So, a lot of potential for telehealth to support access to specialist services and clear interest in advancing access to care through these mechanisms when we last discussed this topic in September. Fast forward to 2020 and we find ourselves in a situation where, as we've already mentioned, the environment has almost demanded an acceleration in telehealth and telemedicine to support even basic access to care during the current pandemic. So with this in mind, we wanted to speak with members of the haemophilia community to discuss with them how they are adapting to this new reality and what lessons they think this could teach us about the future of haemophilia care. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Cedric Ermans, who is joining us today on Hemecast. Many of you may have heard uh, Professor Ermans before, but for those of you who haven't, uh, Cedric, are you happy to just introduce yourself? Certainly, and thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to join you today. So my name is Cedric Hermans. I'm based in Brussels, Belgium, where I am heading uh, the Hemophilia Treatment Center of the Clinique Universitaire Saint-Luc, which is a, a large hospital. I have a long interest in, in hemophilia, in hemophilia research. Uh, especially, I'm quite interested in, of, in the impact of new technologies 
uh, on Hemophilia Care today and, and tomorrow. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cedric, and great to have you with us. So, look, this is, these have been some very challenging times over the past six months or so. Tell me, how have you been getting on? How has this impacted your, your clinical care and your practice uh, in Belgium? Well, thank you, Jan. Well, this is true. It has been a very difficult and unprecedented experience for us. So in March, uh, we realized that because of the pandemic, it was not longer possible to manage our patient through, you know, clinical visits, face-to-face visits, and especially multidisciplinary clinics. So that was not longer possible. Yeah. And um, we also were concerned by that, but we were also very concerned by the fact that our patients could be at risk. So at that time, you know, there was no face-to-face visits. So what we decided to do really at the beginning uh, was to inform all our patients that they had to follow very cautiously some very important measures. Mm-hmm. And we also uh, realized that our patients needed some sort of information about this virus. Yes. You know, as you know, you know, the hemophilia community is quite used, you know, to this viral infection. Yes. But this one is totally different. So they absolutely need some sort of information. So that was... Uh, clearly a priority for us. And the only way to do that was to use, you know, new technologies. Okay. Um, So we had to use our phones, we had to use Skype, we had to use everything we had to get in touch with our patient. Yes. And uh, what what was very important too here is to have, you know, an updated database of all your patients. Okay. And all their contact details. We should not forget this. If you want to contact your patient, you should make sure that you have, you know, a good database uh, with a good list of all your patients you follow, and with their contact details, ideally, you know, their mobile phone number, uh, their emails. I think this is important, and this is a lesson also for the future. Let's make sure that we have all details available yeah, yeah, to yeah. get in touch with our patients very rapidly. Yeah. So, as you say, you know, making sure you could get hold of people was absolutely paramount. Mm-hmm. But but what sort of, you know, if we if we go back to those early days in March, you know, what were those first sort of conversations like? You know, was there a lot of uh, fear or a lot of of concern? Can you remember what it was like? Yeah, well, certainly there was concern about, you know, um, being exposed to the virus and what the the consequences could be. So we had to provide our patients with some basic information about the virus, the disease it could cause, and what they should do to protect themselves. Mm. Uh, We also had to make sure that our patients would quickly recognize the first symptoms Okay. Sure. So if they had fever, if, if they had, you know, shortness of breath or things like that, you know, they should not wait. Yeah. Uh, and we try to explain them how to manage this. And then, you know, we also had to manage uh, the management of their hemophilia. And a major concern in the community was the access to, to the treatment, you know, sure. and also the delivery of concentrates. Because yes. very quickly, yes. patients realize that, you know, everything would completely stop Uh including, you know, potentially the delivery and why not even possibly the manufacturing of their concentrates. So our patients really wanted to be reassured and make sure that they would have access to treatment. So what, sure. what we did with them, we, we, when we phoned them and when we were in contact with them, we made sure that they were enough concentrate at home for all of them. Mm. Uh, we tried to make sure that they would not overstock 
yes. uh, supply of concentrate at all because we had to make sure that there was enough concentrate for all the patients. So we had a lot of contact ju just to manage this, just to manage this. Yes. Um, and uh, how yeah. did telehealth itself, or as you say, the digital technologies, how did that help to enable you to do that? Well, clearly, you know, that was an, an ideal way to interact with the patient. Even, you know, it was virtually face-to-face, -face, you know, using our screens. Mm -hmm. sure. Also, you know, we, we, we used also a lot of emails. I think, you know, it's quite reassuring for our patient and my whole team. We really mobilized ourselves to make sure that once we got emails from our patients that we would provide them with a, a rapid answer. But also, let's be realistic, not all our patients do have you know, access to all these technologies. And we have some yes. older patients with hemophilia. You know, they are not that used. At least most of them have a, um, a mobile phone. And uh, so we could contact them by phone. But that was the only way to, to be in contact with them. So let, let's not minimize, you know, uh, the impact this pandemic had on this specific population. And this is something we should think about in the future, is how to make sure that even older patients with less expertise in, this, in these new technologies, you know, get a proper, you know, education and can properly manage them. That was certainly yeah. something, yeah. It, and, it, and it's a really important point, isn't it? You know, listening to how this is received by patients. Did you get any specific feedback from patients about how they found uh, sort of, you know, well, engaging with healthcare during this, the, 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 this, this time? Well, what was quite reassuring for the patient is to realise very quickly that their hemophilia team was there in backup, yeah. you know, really, you know, keeping a constant eye on the situation, yes. you know, and trying to interact with them as closely as possible. And that was really, really reassuring, especially for patients, because we had a few patients who developed the symptoms of COVID-19 and needed to be admitted. Yes. So we could also manage very properly their admission in hospital. So I, I think, you know, it really helped to create, I think, a new relationship with our patient, because sometimes, you know, the relationship is only based on this review clinic. Absolutely. Uh, and here we could really enter, I think, a new world, which a much closer communication. And I think that's quite mm -hmm. helpful. We also had to adapt ourselves because patients, you know, do prefer the phone, some prefer emails, some prefer face-to-face -face on, on Skype or Zoom or whatever. So, and the new technologies really help us to identify what's the best way to communicate individually with all of our patients. And yeah. also, you know, coming back to the messages, you know, we really put a lot of our time and energy to make sure that all our patients would continue their treatment. Uh, that was important, you know, prophylaxis, continuation of prophylaxis was very important. And also, you know, even for patients without severe hemophilia, for patients with mild or moderate hemophilia, we try to make sure that they were aware of what to do in case of bleed or suspicion of bleed. Because here, and I think this is important, the strategy was really to minimize the need for hospital visit and hospital admission. Yes. So everything was driven by that. Let's make sure that our patients will not jeopardize their health uh, and at the same time will not need access or visit in the hospital. So clearly counseling here, distant counseling, I would say, on hemophilia management was here critical. And honestly, yeah. honestly, we know that some of our patients are quite, you know, quite good at doing that. Some are yeah. 
uh, have less autonomy, I would say. And we really focused on our energy on this patient because we knew that some patients might require much more attention than others. And that's why I also think that when you have this kind of crisis, you should have this uh, some sort of good profiling of all our patients yeah. and really understand in advance what the needs will be. This is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear that very loud. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it was wonderful that you were able to provide, you know, reassurance that you were there, but also, as you say, to be able to provide the counselling and, and, and the direct um, advice for clinical patient care while also recognizing that individual needs of patients were going to differ and you know it's, it's a wonderful example you've just described where you were able to address that now Cedric I know you have mm. um, experience in the past of, of using telehealth I know in your role with WFH and part of the twinning programs that you've probably used telehealth and telemedicine in different sort of uh, spheres are you able to share any experience of how you've used telemedicine telehealth in the past well especially you know to interact with with patients more more frequently i would say you know telemedicine i think it, it's great but it's it it will never in my view completely substitute or replace you know the face to face medicine but what really what mm. it really helps to do is to have more much more frequent contacts especially mm. you know let's say you have a, a, a hemophilia clinic and during that clinic you will identify some priorities and also try to set goals, objectives. And what telemedicine really helps to do is to make sure that the patient will be able to achieve these goals uh, within the next three, six months. Uh, because if, if you passively wait for the next clinic and no, nothing is done, I think this is not a good strategy. But if you could interact with the patients frequently by telehealth, I think it really helps. It's quite stimulating mm. for the patients and you, you can really see, you know, and evaluate the progress you are, you are doing over time. So I, I see this certainly as, as, a, as an adjunct, uh, a way to mm. keep in touch, in contact, to reach objectives yeah. and also to improve patients' educations and patients' empowerment. Yeah. And, and do you think this is here for good? You know, is this going to be the future of how the patient-doctor relationship is going to evolve? Or, or do you think this is, is just, you know, a fad, something that is currently in fashion? Or do you think there's a future here? No, no, I, I think it's... Uh, well, you, you know, some people already anticipated that it would change how medicine is practiced. But, uh, mm. you know, it, I think it would have taken years to become a reality. It's clear that uh, this pandemic and the pressure it put on us completely changed the scenery. So... Uh, I think, you know, it, we will have to use this technology. Uh, they are really useful. They have major benefits. They are quite complementary. So I think they are there and I think they will remain with us. Uh, but they need to be fine-tuned. Mm. And I think they also need to find their place, yes. in, in, in the ma- specifically in the management of hemophilia. But I, I think they, they will create a new way of communicating between uh, the centers and, and the patients. And we... Uh, it, it, it needs to be improved. It's it's clear, um, but I, I, it will never disappear, and uh, I, I, it, we will never go back to what we were doing in the past. I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah. let's be let's be realistic. You know, here in my hospital, we will have to make sure that the technology is there, that we have all the the, the, the technology that is needed, available uh, at any time. So that will require uh, investment on our site. 
and also investment of the whole team. Because doctors, we are open to this, but we will have to involve all other health professionals. Uh, and I think this is a real challenge for the next few months and few years. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank you, Cedric, for that. And I think, you know, maybe maybe just a, a final question. Um, you know, I'm conscious there may be people listening to this this podcast who haven't yet embraced sort of virtual health services. And if you were to offer any recommendations to them, you know, starting out, you know, is there anything you would particularly recommend uh, that they did to get comfortable with this technology? Well, you know, I, I well, if they've never done this, I, I would certainly stimulate them to, to start and, and try. Maybe, you know, try this with, with, with patients that you feel will be quite uh, receptive to this technology and, and this new approach. Yeah. Do that with selected patients at the beginning and then try to broad this technology to a much wider population and do this progressively step by step. Uh, it will not be a, a revolution within one day. You will have to mm. implement this over time, but please do it uh, and don't do this alone. Involve the whole team. Um, that, that would be my message. And also try to set up some objectives that you want to achieve with, uh, with uh, implementation of this new technology. But clearly, they are quite valuable and they provide such a, a, a good adjunct uh, to what has been our uh, classical care up to now, I would say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your, your time today, Cedric. We really appreciate it. It's been wonderful to speak to you, wonderful to learn and listen uh, to your experiences. And, uh, you know, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. It was, it was great. And thank you again for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share this with us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fascinating to hear from Cedric there about how his clinic has adapted and embraced telemedicine during the recent pandemic. I do hope some of his advice on how to adopt virtual health into the clinic has been useful to those of you wanting to embrace digital health. We now know that telehealth can enable the collaboration between physicians and patients within a virtual clinic. But how would this look for other specialties integral to the care of people with haemophilia, such as physiotherapy? Physiotherapy has long been recognised as an important aspect of haemophilia care, helping patients with functional improvements and recovery after musculoskeletal bleeds. Now, most of us would recognise physiotherapy as a hands-on treatment, but the specialism is changing to adapt to different healthcare environments. And this is exactly what Sebastian Lobe, a physiotherapist and researcher at the Clinique Universitaire Saint-Luc in Belgium, showed us in an interview earlier this year. There were two interesting debates that, can, that I maybe can explain to you. The first one was, um, uh, do we still need um, uh, a physiotherapist in the HTC, in the Hemophilia Treatment Center, or do we need absolutely to collaborate with local team, with local physiotherapists? And uh, at the end, I think that the answer is that both kind of physiotherapists are super important. We need a physiotherapist with a specialty in hemophilia that perfectly understands his patient and can follow them uh, on a regular basis. But as terms really of treating patients, we need to rely on the local team. And who is the best to explain to the local physiotherapists 
how to treat a patient with hemophilia is the physiotherapist from the hemophilia treatment center. So both are very, very important and are totally complementary. That was one of the first debates. The second debate was, um, do we need to use um, passive techniques such as um, uh, manual therapy to improve, for example, range of motion of your patient? Or is it better to take time to explain to your patient how to do the exercise at home? That means self-rehabilitation. Because the, the fact is that probably 90 or 95% of the world population will not have access to physio session. Uh, at least manual therapy session because it's costly, it necessitates a high skill of the physiotherapist. Of course, it's very efficient, but at the end, what do we want to, to do to improve the care in general or just for a minority? And I think that um, all the audience was agreed that manual therapy is a very important concept of, of our treatment as a physio, but we should also to develop the concept of self-rehabilitation and community-based physiotherapy. That means that we have to teach the patient to take care of himself or just to learn to the family how to do very simple and regular exercise with the child, with the children to improve their range of motion. And um, we had recently, uh, my team, um, a very good experience in Ivory Coast uh, where we... Uh, um, published the result of, uh, of self-rehabilitation in, in patients that, of course, do not have access to physiotherapy. And the, and, and the results were outstanding with a very high adherence of the patient. So my uh, conclusion was to say that now with the, involvement, with the <clears throat> improvement of telemedicine, of new technology, um, we could combine this kind of new technologies with... Um, developing the self-rehabilitation and, and, and really combining basic physiotherapy but with, uh, with um, very high tech uh, technologies just to follow the patients by distance, to correct them, to, to modify their program on a daily basis because when you do self-rehabilitation, the problem is the motivation. If you go, if you decide to go to the gym on the 1st of January because you have good resolution, uh, most of the time you abandon it after two weeks because you don't get the motivation. It's exactly the same for the patient uh, to have a self-rehabilitation program. We need to continue to motivate them by distance, in face-to-face, -face, whatever, but we have to find solution to, to continue to uh, improve their motivation by doing their exercises. Sebastian mentioned the challenge around access to care due to geographical barriers, but also the challenge around motivation. Studies have shown that attendance to follow-up physiotherapy appointments and physio-prescribed programmes are low. Ongoing support and motivation to persevere with a physiotherapy-prescribed physical regime in the home may hold the key to improving long-term adherence and overall outcomes. Applying a similar principle to the multidisciplinary care team at large, we wanted to explore how specialist haemophilia nursing teams are employing telehealth during virtual clinics and what we as a community can learn from a centre where telemedicine is much more established due to existing geographical challenges. 
We are delighted to be joined by Christian uh, Yusola, a paediatric nurse from Aulu University Hospital in Finland, who specializes in hematology and oncology. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yes, I work as a paediatric nurse here in uh, northern Finland, and uh, we deal with population of oncology and hematology. So the um, hemophilia patients is part of that service. And uh, we actually take care of the half of the Finland, basically, because they are uh, in, in geographically. Okay. But population-wise, the northern part of the Finland is obviously a little bit less people living here than in the south. So um, we are the second largest paediatric oncology and haematology centre here in Finland. Well, it's great to have you with us, Christian. And, and thank you very much, because I know these are very busy and also very unusual times. But I wondered if you could maybe, to start with, share with us how you've been adapting your current practice to the current times. You know, have you had to make any immediate changes? How's life been up in Finland, sort of through these these rather unprecedented times. Yeah, it definitely has been something that uh, no one anticipated. But I, um, I think we've been very lucky here in Finland in in terms of uh, how the COVID uh, has changed our life. In a way of uh, we we've had fair share of uh, situational changes, of course, but we really haven't been hit that hard. And mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons might be that because. We got so much space here where we live that we practically don't see that many people in the same places at at one time. When it comes to the practice, we definitely anticipated and made some huge changes uh, according to the global situation and uh, and particularly for the um, hemophilia patients, we cancelled all the uh, non-necessary appointments and and made them like uh, via telephone or mm-hmm. or just postponed them. And um, we did think about the um, you know, if you think about the medication changes and stuff like that, we sure. put them all all of them we put on hold just okay. in case that there are any uh, problems with the infections and, and and stuff like that. Yeah. So since we are not that big unit or service, uh, we uh, we were quite uh, easily or, or well, not, maybe not easily, but we were able to sort of um, look through all the patient load and, and we were quite lucky that we usually have a six-month routines mm-hmm. and nearly all of our patients had already had their early year okay. op- appointments. Yeah. So basically the time period from April to um, August is quite slow when it comes yes. to the hemophilia patients. So we, we didn't have that much of a strain to uh, go through the patients. But of course, there are always, you know, odd patients there, what, we, what you have to deal with. But the kind of a regular ones, we've been able to accommodate quite well. Sure. So, you know, you, you mentioned how, you know, you needed to either cancel appointments or move appointments to be done by telephone you know, I suppose that was some experience of telehealth and telemedicine. Um, yeah. Could you maybe share a few more examples of how telehealth, telemedicine has been embraced uh, up in Finland and, 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 and what your experience has been of it, really? Well, um, it's obviously, it's a situation is new, but the actual telemedicine is, is quite familiar for us already because of the... Um, uh, like I said, geographical um, uh, challenges that we have because some of our patients live about 600 kilometers away from the clinic. Oh, wow. So in a way, we've been doing the telemedicine 
all along. And, mm. and we really made our kind of a practice different model. We've been using them all the, all the time. So yeah. this situation in this, with the COVID didn't really bring us anything new in, mm-hmm. in, in a way. Only thing was obviously that it came so sudden and, and, and stuff like that. But the sure. telemedicine itself, we've been using mobile phones and emails and different kind of a video conferencing when needed. But the, mostly yeah. the um, by phone, telephoning the patients. And so, so it's it's basically nothing new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, no, it's it's fantastic that you've been, you know, so familiar, but also so much on the the front foot and adopting early you know, ways that patient care can be modified uh, sort of with the use of telemedicine. So as someone who's been practicing telemedicine for a while, what do you think are the key elements of making it a success? What do you really need to focus on to have a really successful consultation, whether it be by phone or by email or by video app or just whatever the platform is? What are the, the real recipes for success? Well, I'd say that the, you have to begin with the um, proper kind of a communication and trust and laying the groundwork of the patient and, and doctor relationship or, or nurse, obviously. But first of all, you need to know your patients and you need to have a face-to-face contact where you can build that relationship. Yeah. And af- after that, I think it's the kind of a number of contacts that will then eventually become like a second nature. So yeah. always always the first contact what you make through the telemedicine devices is always a little bit awkward or, mm. or you always end up thinking about the issues that could have gone better. But mm. um, I think it's just making sure that the um, contacts are like a regular and yeah. the distance or the, the time frame is not too long. So you have to keep yeah. in touch with them regularly. And yeah. that way it will, like I said, it will, it will become more or less like a second nature. And it also builds the kind of um, feeling for the families that it's okay for them to contact you as well. Mm-hmm. And the threshold for them to ask different questions becomes less and less. And in that way you will end up having a quite fluently flowing um, uh, conversations and fluently f- flowing kind of uh, intermediate appointments, should I say. Yeah, yeah. And that actually leads very nicely onto sort of the next thing I was going to ask you about, and that was what, what the patients think. You know, what feedback do you get from, uh, you know, your patients? Is it something that they've embraced as much as you've embraced and your team have embraced? How do they find telemedicine? Well, I, I think that they, they quite enjoy it because obviously... Mm. Having a chronic illness, which takes a lot of, uh, you have to have a lot of um, self-management uh, with the disease. Mm. And once you have a person at the clinic who is also um, easily approachable, it makes it more like an individualized care where the patient really sees the value and and, and that way, they want to let you know about things and they want to ask you some questions rather than just dealing them with themselves and then seeing mm. you maybe twice a year for 15 minutes. Mm. So I, I think that it, it is, like I said in the beginning, that you, when you build this kind of a relationship where, where you have this trust trust within each other and the patients will um, value your input, 
they will mm-hmm. give back and they will contact you then more easily and more often. And I think yeah. that they really enjoyed it because obviously life happens and it's not always that easy to deal with everyday life. So yes. whatever you can make it easier for them to obtain any kind of a documents or or whatever they yeah. need for their social welfare or the, the health welfare things, yeah. side of things like different kind of uh, documents and stuff like that. So they, they really um, kind of like it, I'd say. Yeah, well, no, it's great to hear. And it's great to hear how much Finland's embraced uh, sort of remote medicine and telemedicine historically, which which sort of leads me on really to my final question. And with the fact that you have been leaders in this space, that you have been adopting early what do you think the future holds for telemedicine and for remote consultation in the future what do you look for from it in the future and and if you were to stare into your crystal ball how do you think things may pan out well um for definitely they are here to stay um i'm not sure if it's um going to be the kind of a first choice but definitely on the side it will continue to grow and develop and mm. and uh, with the healthcare providers and the patient uh, kind of a, a contact or, or the um, uh, side of things it might take some time before it comes as a uh, regular business but mm. then again between the healthcare providers I think that more and more of the meetings and more and more of the uh, kind of a collaboration between um, professionals, it will be through telemedicine because the travel always takes so much time and, and it's not easy. Yeah. But then again, I think also that we we do have uh, excellent options available, but the adaptation of these options is very difficult because people, wherever they are working, wherever they are li- living, they don't have the same opportunities and they don't know maybe how to deal with these technical issues. So that's a threshold yes. that we really need to sort of lower and somehow get it easier and easier so that we can adapt them more. So I think it's just part of the kind of a keep practicing and keep doing it. And then eventually we will find the solution that's like, let's say, Facebook today, that everybody has it and everybody knows how to use it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly a very optimistic view of the future and one actually that I, I, I very much subscribe to as well. And, uh, you know, Kristin, it's been wonderful having you with us today. Uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, I look forward to speaking soon. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a joy. Lessons for everyone, I think you'll agree, from Christian's experience with telehealth before the COVID-19 pandemic and how both his teams and patients in Northern Finland have embraced digital care into their practice. Finally, the impact of adapting to a virtual healthcare community can surely be felt no more deeply than by those at the very heart of care, people living with haemophilia in their families. So we're delighted to be able to sit down, uh, virtually of course, with Lawrence Woolard, uh, and uh, we're going to discuss in more detail telemedicine. So I'm sure most of you will know Lawrence, but for those of you who don't, Lawrence, would you be uh, kind enough to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, it'd be a pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And obviously, thanks so much for the uh, invite to the podcast. It's great to be here. Um, so I'm based near Cambridge in the UK. Um, I'm a patient strategist and through my consultancy on the Pulse, um, collaborate, partner uh, with and support 
uh, global healthcare providers and third sector organisations in the development and delivery of uh, educational programming and engagement um, with people like me uh, living with rare chronic conditions um, such as haemophilia. So um, I live with severe haemophilia A and have a known family history. Oh, thanks, Lawrence, for sharing that. And, uh, you know, look, it's great to have you with us and, and particularly, you know, to discuss um, sort of telemedicine, virtual clinics and everything sort of digital around haemophilia. And over the sort of uh, past few months or so, we've really had an opportunity to speak with health professionals who've really adopted virtual clinics to support patients. And, and of course, it's been very relevant during this pandemic. Is this something you personally have experienced as well? You know, how have you been maintaining contact with your medical team? So, yeah, it's, it's a really great opening question. I think, um, you know, let me start by saying, uh, you know, virtual clinics, I think, being one aspect of that broader telehealth or tele- telemedicine approach. I think two terms often used interchangeably. Sure. Um, like you say, really emerged as a, as a practical solution to mitigate ongoing clinical need during this type of global challenge that is clearly unprecedented for both individuals and their families and their multidisciplinary care team. Now, in, in certain settings, I would expect there has been some level of adoption of technologies pre-COVID, which have particular relevance for, for people like me living with chronic conditions um, that are designed to improve health management and outcomes throughout the life course. But I think it's, you know, interesting, some have compared the way telemedicine is moving healthcare from hospital into the home to the way many consumers access online banking instead of in branch visits. And it's always been stressed by my clinical team that I can access them anytime, any place, anywhere, which funnily enough, yeah. uh, kind of sounds like a bank slogan, but it's actually, <laughs> you know, really reassuring, you know, for me to know in times of crisis. Yeah. Um, and just out of interest, you know, is, is that something you've needed to do? You know, it's one thing having it there, but, but just by the very nature of your, 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 your haemophilia, have you needed to sort of call on them anytime, anyplace, anywhere? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been quite interesting. So I think you know, underlying, from my perspective, I think underlying that that patient-physician relationship is one of interpersonal trust. And, you know, I feel really fortunate to have established a really good rapport, you know, with my consultant and and clinical team to be able to communicate quite regularly on on general sort of haemophilia topics via a popular messaging app. Um, But, you know, albeit not as frequently in recent months, and I think like others, I've been quite hesitant to engage where I've had no, you know, real emergencies considering many of the clinical team, as I understand, were deployed to frontline practice to support, you know, here in the UK, you know, the NHS response to coronavirus. So it's been quite an it's been quite an interesting dynamic really, but um but I think it's more especially in in relation to um you know in terms of product supplies and also um, about uh, postponements in certain, you know, obviously appointments, but also personally speaking as well, surgical interventions. Um, sure. So, so, so it know. sounds like th- th- there's been advantages for you for using telemedicine over sort of traditional uh, uh, contact with, with, with your healthcare professional team. 
Definitely. And I think, you know, there are, uh, without doubt, there's, you know, several possible advantages, I think, for, for you know, a lot of individuals living with haemophilia, using telemedicine for their care. Um, I think, broadly speaking, I think, you know, in some cases, that kind of improved time response to getting mm. answers to questions, especially to facilitate early and appropriate management of, a, of an acute bleed. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, reducing that the time between the onset assessment and administration of treatment at home, which is really, obviously, really important. Um, but also that, um, uh, you know, that ability to connect using different technology can further overcome that geographical yes. access challenge, you know, and enabling more people, especially those living in underserved areas, to receive specialist care and take part in clinical trials. And I think that can reduce costs like travel considerably for some individuals. And I think... You know, where that distance between home and the specialist centre, you know, it can be a notable barrier for continuity of care. So certainly um, being able to have technology in place to support that engagement has been really, really important. Yeah, and I, and I know you're particularly connected with the uh, patient community, the haemophilia patient community uh, in the UK, but also across Europe and globally. Has there been a lot of chat in the community around telemedicine? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, I wouldn't say um, uh, telemedicine per se. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of activity uh, with the use of webinars to support okay. educational programming and continued engagement with members, which I think has been really fantastic and mainly driven by the, the patient advocacy groups. Um, but actually, you know, specifically around the use of telemedicine, telehealth as a part of people's um, you know, uh, overall care, I think, you know, it's not necessarily a, a conversation I've, I've personally had directly with peers and friends and colleagues. But I think, you know, like we've like we've referred to, you know, there's there's clearly definitely been a need during this during this period. And I think, you know, we'll see, I'm sure we'll see more dialogue and engagement going on around the use of virtual clinics and, and telemedicine more broadly. Just moving on a little bit to, you know, other uh, sort of platforms or other mechanisms, you know, and I'm thinking here around wearables, apps, other digital tools in the haemophilia space. You know, do you think we've reached our full potential with respect to sort of engaging with your health and, and trying to, to, to maintain health and, and also, you know, I suppose peak, peak management of haemophilia? Do, do you think we've got there yet? Yeah, again, it's another really great question. I think, you know, when we think about mHealth specifically, without doubt, it's all, you know, it's augmenting the health ecosystem and, um, you know, can and can increase the effectiveness and effectivity of healthcare services through patient monitoring, uh, as we discussed, health education and, and tools for data collection, um, as well as to, to modify health-related behaviours. Again, as we've recently witnessed um, through public information alerts for coronavirus, but um, but mm. in haemophilia specifically, there's definitely been um, a shift towards developing apps to improve knowledge acquisition, self-management, treatment compliance, um, personalised care and monitor treatment use and outcomes. You know, we have a, we have an, in, in the UK, we have an independent app mm. called HemeTrack that was actually, it was reported in 2017. It was being used by something like 90% of, of treatment centres being accessed by over 2,500 people living with bleeding disorders. And there was a compliance rate of 78%. Uh, wow. which by all accounts is really good uptake. Um, but but to your point, I think it's 
you know, from my point of view, a particular app like that is quite basic in its design. Okay. And, you know, we've seen other efforts to, to offer a better tailored experience um, using wearable devices um, to supplement treatment regime with sort of comprehensive phys- physical activity data. Yeah, yeah. And ha- have there been any concerns amongst patients around engaging with sort of these these wearables and apps? Or is there generally, you know, this this sense that these are are positive and actually are there to, to, to help improve quality of care? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's there's sort of natural concerns around, you know, sort of privacy and, and data collection for sure. sure. Um, I think there's been, um, you know, anecdotally, but also some kind of published studies. I know there was one um, in done in Spain um, for a survey with around 181 people living with haemophilia on their um, expectations of them health use. And, you know, it, it was observed with that, the privacy concerns don't, you know, didn't significantly affect their intention of using M Health. I think it was more about the lack of up-to-date and relevant information, the reliability and trustworthiness um, that can actually deter use. But that's a really, I think that's a really interesting point, though, Ian, because, you know, in the context of haemophilia, I think it's, you know, really around kind of transparency, isn't it, from, from the clinical team in particular about the use of platforms um, to collect that type of data, you know, how and where it's being used, and also to support, you know, education and dialogue with the community um, around the importance of those different types of apps and platforms and wearables. And again, mm. how that can support and empower you, not only in terms of your individual care, but actually collectively to drive up standards of care together. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite noticeable sort of how much the community has embraced the shift towards digital and and telemedicine as a whole. But I suppose when you look back and reflect over the past three, four months, and my word, there's a lot to reflect back on over the past three, four (laughs) months or so. But, you know, what do you think have been sort of the key learnings from this greater evolution towards telemedicine that that we we can apply to the future delivery of haemophilia care? So I think one of the biggest challenges... Um, with any sort of digital intervention, you know, app, platform, website, whatever it might be, um, specifically, you know, is, is again, whether sort of users have had the opportunity, equal opportunities, become engaged and informed about their condition to understand the app's utility mm. and derive value from the data they're inputting, again, to enable them to actually improve their own care. And I think there's always a risk of focusing on the tech itself rather than addressing the underlying reasons and possible causes for poor self-management in the first instance. Mm. So, you know, I I always, you know, from my perspective at least, I believe this should be more of an enhancement than a replacement to, you know, experiential and inclusive educational experiences to increase community engagement and ensure users can actually maximise the potential of these technologies. Mm. Um, I would also say that I don't think, again, telehealth can replace in-person patient care. I mean, body language alone is a strong determinant of how someone is coping with their health and well-being and, and to sort of pick up on subliminal messages that you otherwise may overlook through a screen. And I'm 
as you might know, Ian, you know, I'm certainly a uh, people's person. I really value yeah. my interaction in clinic. But, you know, yeah. as we've discussed, you know, considering the circumstances that we're all going through, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the telemedicine being used today and its effectiveness will determine its level of adoption by both HCPs yeah. and members of the community for the delivery of haemophilia care in the future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I look, I couldn't agree more with what, with what you described there. You know, I think it it always comes down to having, you know, clear content, clear messages, clear, uh, just a clear patient interaction. You know, as a healthcare professional, and the platform itself, you know, whether that be digital, whether it be face to face, it's sort of a little bit, I wouldn't say irrelevant but it, it, it's not the foundation of that that clinical relationship and sure. uh, the, these are methods to uh, you know to, to expand and to explore it in these trying times now and probably well, well beyond but uh, I think your points are really well made so yeah, you know Lawrence it, it's been great having you with us uh, today thank you so much for your time um, wonderful to speak to you and uh, look forward to catching up soon thanks Ian all right the best you too thank you thanks for the opportunity cheers there you have it lawrence highlighting the importance of the physician patient relationship and face-to-face interaction in the care of people living with hemophilia as lawrence described telemedicine has already played a large role in improving care for people living with hemophilia and we're excited to see what new developments will come to hemophilia care so A great opportunity to hear different perspectives on telemedicine and how physicians, nurses, physiotherapists and patients are all embracing this technology. I look forward to seeing how haemophilia care will adapt and evolve in the coming months and what the future may look like for people with haemophilia in an era of digital health. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Hemecast. And all that remains is for me to extend my thanks to Roshni Kulkarni, Sebastian Lobe, Cedric Ermans, Christian Usola, and Lawrence Woolard, and all our contributors for their incredible insights. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is powered by Pfizer.